You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach at the end of what has already been a very busy week, David. Uh, indeed, Giles, it has, you know, and getting some electricity work done at this house myself. Uh, so I've seen things from the pointy end and... Uh, Lots of comedy in the whole process as usual, Giles, and irony and stuff. And we're going to talk about social licence today as well. We are. Look, I'm not too sure whether you're talking about sort of uh, comedy and um, and uh, and things with your sort of in, in, the introduction of three-phase electricity in your house or um, in, in, in the energy well, market. That, but that, probably both. That, <laughs> uh, that and managing to hit myself in the nose with my own tennis racket, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, virtually break it, uh, which is a cause for humour, you know, after having avoided blows from so many others during the time, I managed to do it to myself. But anyway, let's keep moving. I'm sure that's not what our listeners really want to hear about. No, oh, you'd be surprised. Um, no, what did you want to hear about? Actually, is some of the big news this week. Um, I've uh, we're going to get to Sun Cable and the uh, Hornsdale battery, uh, the Energy Minister's meeting this Friday, and also Energy Australia's announcement of a fast track closure of the Mount Piper coal-fired power generator in New South Wales. And we're also going to be talking about social license and particularly the development of renewable energy zones and. Joining us on this podcast is um, Andrew Bray from RE Alliance or Realliance. Um, Andrew, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much, Giles. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on. And hello to your listeners. Yes. Well, look, um, we'll get back to your main topics later, but I just wanted to kick off, I think, with some of the big news that's kind of happened in the last 24 hours. David Sun Cable. Um, now, this is an interesting project, the world's biggest solar farm, the world's biggest battery storage installation at a place called Elliot in Northern Territory, um, backed by Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks, was 14 gigawatts and 33 gigawatt hours, and there's now going to be up to 20 gigawatts of solar, which makes it even the biggest, biggest, bigger, biggest um, solar farm in the country, in the world, and up to 42 gigawatt hours of battery storage. And they've got permission from Indonesia to have a look at subsea cabling with a view to doing some maintenance facilities and repair workshops or whatever else is needed on Indonesian land. Um, this thing seems to be moving forward. It does seem to be moving forward, as you would expect, with such uh, two vibrant entrepreneurs uh, up at the top of it. And from what I understand, a willingness from Singapore who want to reduce their use of gas. And if you looked at what's happening to gas prices around the world this year, uh, you could understand that. And I think as well as all the 33 terawatt hours that you mentioned, the interesting thing about this project is that, as I uh, understand it, and I don't really, uh, it's designed to be producing energy 24-7, you know, so baseload power uh, in the old term um, uh, from just solar and batteries. So 
that's not well, normally... extraordinary, really. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Now, now they're looking. At, it looks like they're looking at several different components. First of all, um, Singapore, as you'd mentioned, but also supporting sort of a manufacturing facility in Darwin, and I presume that that manufacturing actually could be for the construction of solar panels for exactly a project like this and some of the other mega projects that's being considered around the place. So um, they've already maybe the first step might be a six hundred or an eight hundred megawatt transmission line from the proposed project into Darwin, and as far as that. And then doing the cabling later on. Yeah, well, I, I think the technical thing, uh, well, there are lots of interesting technical aspects, but the one that most of us don't know that much about is actually running these uh, ocean, under ocean uh, power cables to Singapore and going through uh, political crossing other countries' boundaries like Indonesia. Uh, you do think a lot about the risk mm. involved, but uh, and I'm sure it's not going to get finished tomorrow, but it's so, but it is great to have a positive announcement. Um, Andrew, we're going to come to some of the other network um, issues and renewable energy zones in um, the eastern states and elsewhere later on. But I just thought I'd just sort of drop this one in on you because Sun Cable, like some of these other mega projects that are being proposed in around Australia, and I'm thinking of the Western Renewable Energy Hub from uh, CWP Power and uh, Intercontinental, 50 gigawatts north of Esperance in Western Australia. Another one from the same parties, 26 gigawatts in the Pilbara. Andrew Forrest is talking about his own projects, hasn't quite to find where they are but these are going to have massive transmission lines at least to electrolyzers and to outlets be they sort of hydrogen hubs or whatever and you never know you might actually have these sort of um, hvdc lines that might connect it back into a grid either in western australia or in the eastern states how should we be thinking about that well i think i think the first place to be thinking is well where where are you building this stuff you know, in the first place, where are the where are the panels going to sit, and and whose land is it? And and obviously here we're getting into the space of indigenous land use agreements and um, making you know having genuine engagement with the local indigenous and First Nations groups, and um, and getting those agreements in place so that uh, if they're going to be the host communities for these projects, and there are real benefits that accrue uh, to those groups. So um, it, that's certainly the, the kind of thing that uh, CWP have there in their mega projects that you just mentioned and um, and I expect that Sun Cable are working on the same sort of things as well so it's from our I mean there's you know any number of exciting things about about a project like Sun Cable but uh, but for us really the the benefits that can start to accrue to First Nations Australians from these projects is, is mm. a pretty exciting part of it. Yeah, well, we'll get back to some of the social license issues too, because they're going to be quite um, topical, and we've sort of discussed them in recent um, interviews and podcasts we've had with various network managers. David, I just wanted to have a crack at the Hornsdale story. Now, you've probably seen that the regulator has taken action, court action against Hornsdale Power Reserve, aka the Tesla Big Battery, um, has. Most of um, people have been singing its praise, but um, apparently there was an issue a couple of years ago where a upgrade to some software changed the um, droop settings on the battery, which meant that it couldn't quite deliver exactly what it was supposed to be delivering at certain times in quite the speed that was expected of it. But in the end, nothing really happened because when it was called into action, it didn't quite deliver what it was supposed to be doing, but it still fixed the problem. But the regulator has seemed to have taken a very hard-nosed 
attitude to this, um, no fines, no um, sort of settlements or anything like that, uh, just taken to them to federal court. And a lot of people are very surprised about this, particularly because frequency control, um, particularly by the coal generators in the fleet in the last five or six years, has been a bit of a joke. And they've been all over the shop with this. And uh, they're a bit surprised that if the regulator is going to take action, it should be targeted to the technology that is kind of providing the solution. Yes, Giles. Uh, uh, it's, a bit dope. it's a bit dopey, the whole thing, isn't it, really? Uh, or so it seems. Uh, and the AEMC, I think, has actually just um, uh, published a new rule, or is it in the point of making a new rule, uh, re regarding tighter frequency regulation uh, by all the generators, but which would particularly apply to the coal generators because it's been fairly well known that they can make more money by letting the frequency uh, slide a little bit from time to time. Mm. Uh, and so that's been tightened up. As regards this particular thing, as I understand it, which I don't as usual, uh, the, fa the fact is that there was uh, Tesla was in breach. It was an accidental breach, but it was in breach. So to that extent, to that extent, in the same way that ignorance is no excuse, I mean, it, you, you can't really... Uh, I mean, and, and it'll be a court case, so Tesla can put its defence forward, or, or, or Neoin, rather. But, I mean, you know, uh, on the face of it, there was a breach, and then there's a question of whether what the remedy should be. Uh, uh, and But if I think about it more generally like football, a, a topic that's dear to my heart, but probably not all the listeners, you don't really mind whether you have a really strict referee or a loose one, provided he plays fair to both sides or the ref, the ref treats both. You know, if you're going to treat the uh, renewable generators this way uh, and, and batteries, then you need to treat the other, other generators exactly the same. And then there won't be any more complaints and maybe we'll have very tight uh, frequency control and people will make sure they don't make mistakes. Uh, the other thing well, to be said about it. Uh, sorry, go on. Well, no, I was going to use the football energy again. I just think if you're the umpire in this match, you'd probably just say play on. But um, they seem well, that, to have whipped out the yellow card, the red card, and hauled them in front of the tribunal. Well, that's right. That's right. But, I mean, I, I guess uh, that Neowen will have an opportunity to present its defence in the tribunal. The other point you're making is, I think, the fact that Claire Savage at the AR, you know, she's got a background of coming out of a coal uh, company. Uh, you know, my impression, which might be quite wrong, uh, is that, uh, you know, she doesn't have any great sympathy for renewable energy in general. But, uh, I mean, I don't want to, uh, I'm sort of saying that on this podcast without mm. really having a proper knowledge of it. It's just a vibe I, I kind of pick up. Well, she's sort of trying to sort of um, say that this is a line in the sand for her and they want to make an example of this technology as a warning, I guess, of all the invertebrate technologies, which are really basically going to run the grid um, very, very soon, that their software settings um, must be set right and there's no excuse not to. And I guess that's fair. I guess the, the, the question is the extent to which um, this is a bit of overreach and um, just sort of hitting the nail with too big a hammer. But, um, but Giles, in the end, it's it's a storm in a teacup, right? I mean, Neowin might end up with a fine or something, and they won't do it again. And it might be fair, or it might be unfair, but it's not going to change anything in the in the biggest scheme of things. Mm. Um, just a final one before we get back to Andrew and some of the other things. The advanced closure of the um, Mount Piper coal-fired coal generator. Um, what do you make of that? Um, timing, interesting, a day ahead of the minister's meeting. And of course, Energy Australia, um, like Claire Savage from the AER, uh, is said to be you know, the two most eager proponents of this controversial capacity payments, um, at least as it might apply to existing coal and gas generators. 
Well, Giles, you know, the first thing is I'd say uh, um, we saw that strategy from Energy Australia. I actually wrote a note about it and put a graph in about what their generation mix was going to look like and how uh, in, in, in a note that, uh, that you were so kind enough to publish. And the fact is that Energy Australia is moving from being a provider of energy uh, to being a provider of power and capacity. So I suppose they'll have to change their name to Capacity Australia or something. Uh, <laughs> Coal uh, Capacity and, Australia. But anyway, and, yeah. and in terms of bringing it forward, I mean, you know, the fact that it's coming forward from 240, 2043 uh, or something like that to 2040 uh, is hardly going to be a dramatic uh, <laughs> uh, difference to things. And I think that it won't, that won't be the last forward move it makes. I think we are going to see a faster transition uh, in, 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 in New South Wales uh, than, than, than we expected. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think the thing for Energy Australia that it really has to think about is does it really want to be in coal and gas generation? So they, uh, because I think gas is going to increasingly come under, under pressure as well. Mm. Let's go to Andrew and bring you in here. Um, Andrew, you wouldn't be sorry to see coal generators exiting the grid early. Oh, well, absolutely not. But 2040 is hardly what you describe as early. Um, you know, I think when you've got the IEA sort of sounding the warning for uh, for Australia that they need to be out of, we, we all need to be out of coal basically by 2030, then, um, you know, as David says, this, this will not be the the only forward move we see in the in the closure time for that. But it just kind of highlights really the the importance of having having a clear transition plan. You know what? Um, I, I think the article you're referring to was was Energy Australia sort of notifying their workers that uh, that their their closure date was coming forward. Um, you know they. We can assume, I think, that the plants are going to be closing before that, and and we need to be talking to the workers much much earlier. We need to be having clear senses of where they can go, what their what their options are going to be, and we need to see retrainings in, um, you know, um, and and payments for workers who are retiring, and all that stuff needs to be. There's there's sort of a bit of an elephant in the room about this, in that no one really wants to admit that this is what's happening. But at the same time, as long as we go on pretending that these coal plants can keep going till 2040, um, we're not going to be getting those transition plans in place. And that's critical for, you know, thousands of workers in um, coal communities throughout the country. Well, there's a couple of things to say about that. The first one is that if you look at what's happened in Victoria, and I often think Victoria is a bit of a muddle for uh, uh, you've got Lily D'Ambrosio saying that, you know, they will not support any uh, capacity payments uh, for anyone uh, that's coal generator, but they're actually doing it themselves for your lawn, which is fairly typical of the uh, electricity industry, in my opinion. But they, they did seem or do seem to have managed the closure of Hazelwood and retraining of the workers there. In, 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 in a very good way. And some of the workers have stayed and some of them have found at, at other coal stations in the area, some of them have stayed in the area and, and found other jobs. Some haven't found any jobs and some have moved away. And the other thing to uh, note about, but overall, as, as I understand it, I think employment is actually up and the area is doing okay, that Latrobe Valley at the moment, relatively speaking. The other thing I want to say about the Lithgow area and the workers there, and Energy Australia is also a very promising uh, pumped hydro project that they're developing around Lake Lyle, uh, just south of Bathurst, which will uh, act, be able to access existing transmission on land and stuff that they already own. 
So, you know, it might be a case for some of those workers of just moving from one place to another. Yeah, which would be fantastic. That's... Yeah. So, Andy, when you look around um, and you talk about this need for transition and for planning and things like that, and it's not just the new jobs and sort of, you know, the, the, the handling of the existing jobs and how you transition people from one to another, but you're also sort of laying down the roadmaps. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm, Matt Keane says, and we actually did an interview um, in the Driven podcast this week with the New South Wales Energy Minister, sort of mostly about his model free car and the EV policies there, but we touched on the um, um, energy roadmap policy. Now, he's says he's quite prepared to see, if necessary, um, all coal, coal generators exit his state's grid by 2030 and says he can handle that. And that means Matt Piper out of the out the back door by 2030 rather than 2040. Do you see anywhere where a government is actually kind of got this under control? Well, um, it's... I think in New South Wales they're doing as much as they can to get it under control, but you know it's it's not under control until it's under control. Um, it, but they've they've got a legislative framework in place um, that they're starting to they they made their uh, draft declaration on the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone just last week, which was the the first um, res off the rank in um, in New South Wales, um, and so a lot of you know a lot of preparatory work is is going in there, um, and and I think there's a really clear plan about how they're going to have the energy going forward, how they're going to have the capacity, how they're going to plug it in with transmission, um, so that the plan part of it is there, and and that's actually really impressive because you know we can think of other places. Um, other jurisdictions throughout the country where the planning isn't there. Um, but in this mm. case, the plan's there and uh, it just needs to be rolled out. But, um, you know, one of the issues is, is going to be once the rollout commences and um, and how it looks uh, from the local communities, um, how, these, how the transmission lines, um, you know, deliver a, a decent return to the the, the host landholders and the communities around them, um, how the renewable energy zone or the communities in those zones, uh, you know, can get on the front foot and really have a say in, in how the res plays out and what benefits it can deliver for those areas. That that part of the, the equation is um, sometimes, you know, swept under the carpet a little bit and people assume it'll just kind of happen. But, uh, but actually there's a lot of people out there and... And as we can, you know, in New South Wales, the regional politics, um, you know, that tail wags the dog pretty hard from time to time. Well, yeah, and, and, and you, are, um, your organisation, I think, I think I'm right in saying, is that this organisation used to be called the Australian Wind Alliance before becoming the um, RE Alliance or the Re Alliance. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We've we've been going since yeah. about 2012 or 13 uh, as the Australian Wind Alliance, uh, and we sort of worked, I guess, in that space between the communities and, and industry. Uh, we're a community advocacy group, so it's the, the community interest we want to see looked after. But at the same time, we uh, we want to see the trans the energy transformation happen as quickly as it can. So, um, you know, the two things go hand in hand there. Yeah. What parallels or differences are you seeing between the sort of the controversy over some of the wind de um, developments going back a few years and, and in some cases ongoing and with the transmission links? Yeah, I think the story of um, of wind is quite useful uh, when it comes to transmission development that's happening now. In that, um, you know, in the early days, um, there were a bunch of wind companies out there, you know, going out and signing leases, and um, not all of them were, you know, as as 
diligent in their development practices as you would hope. Uh, and I think you can you can say admit that the wind industry kicked a few own goals early on in the in the piece, and they uh, got people offside for quite valid reasons. Um, and so there was a bit of catch up had to be play, played, but they did. Um, you know, to their credit, um, they started instituting you know community benefit sharing uh, packages. Uh, their consultation improved. Um, I, I saw over that time a real improvement in the quality of the community engagement staff who were working on those projects. Um, so the the uh, quality of the the engagement helped, and so you were seeing genuine relationships between the industry and communities. Um, those things will get you a long way. Uh, and and in general now, you know, wind, wind projects uh, can have proper conversations with their communities, um, you know, work out what, what needs to be done to accommodate them, uh, adjust their projects as necessary. Uh, and then, you know, they, they really, by and large, are earning their social license. Uh, so when it comes to the transmission ones, uh, you know, in, in a lot of the country, we just haven't seen big transmission lines on this scale for 40 years. So the, the companies are coming and coming to it without that without that knowledge of, um, of how to do it. The, the corporate knowledge of how this was done is, was, you know, went out the door some decades ago. Um, so they have to build it up again. And um, so for the TNSPs who are involved in that, they've got a job to do. But there's there's a bunch of... Um, a bunch of players who who have a job to do here. The, the state governments need to be communicating around the reses and explaining to people, um, you know, why the transmission lines are going in. Uh, you know, in in Victoria, AEMO is a jurisdictional planner. Uh, they um, approved uh, a route that they then tendered out to Osnet, um, and and the route itself is um, from Sydenham in. Uh, Northwestern Melbourne to uh, across to Bulgana, uh, that's causing a lot of uh, a lot of disquiet in, in that area. And I think I think it's fair to say that people on that route don't really appreciate the the myriad of reasons why that was the best route that AEMO could have chosen. Uh, so you know we need to see the jurisdictional planners stepping out. I think in this situation and saying this is why this is the best route. Um, you know, it, it's a balance in all these things between, you know, technical requirements and economics and, um, you know, whatever community considerations they took into account. Uh, and, and having those kind of things explained to local communities in a way that's clear and, and convincing uh, is a piece that I don't think we've, you know, that's a nut that really hasn't been cracked yet. And Andrew, I think uh, just before we quickly move off this topic, uh, you, you pointed out or the AMC and the RIT test, the wonderful test, doesn't really allow for uh, social benefits uh, as part of its uh, as part of the uh, allowable sort of way to think about it. Yeah, that's right. And um, and again, here we're looking at you know a, a fairly fairly dated, what you'd probably describe as a dated paradigm for, for payments to uh, landholders along transmission routes. And and at the moment, uh, a, a TNSP will turn up and offer a, a one-off easement payment, uh, which which has no consideration of, of, you know, payments going forward. And 
and and now in regional Australia, you know, people talk to each other, and and a, a wind farmer will say, well, you know, I'm getting X thousand dollars per year for 25 or 30 years for this wind farm, and a transmission a farmer with a transmission line says, well, I'm getting one payment, and it's not that big, <laughs> so you know, there's a big gap there that we need to clear, and so at this stage, we're we're still trying to get some good advice on whether the AER can simply reinterpret the existing rules, national um, energy rules, um, uh, to allow ongoing payments for transmission lines. Uh, and we're seeing quite a bit of interest, I think, in, amongst the regulators and um, TNSPs for that to happen. Um, but also, you know, we've got New South Wales and Victoria setting their own regulatory tests for transmission in their states. Uh, I think they've, you know, almost almost lost faith in the ability of the RIT-T to deliver what they need. So they're saying, well, we'll, we'll work out our yep. own test and um, we'll yep. make it happen. They're not, the only, they're not the only people to have lost a bit of faith in the, in the RIT-T. I, I think that's uh, clear. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like I, I continue to be a big fan in most respects of what the New South Wales plan and the, uh, and the way they're going about it, you know, just speaking about the social licence and thinking about it. I mean, Chloe Hicks, who works for the New South Wales government, uh, mentioned at Smart Energy Council, she rode a bicycle pretty much over the... Uh, in the first, the Central West or Rana, Rana zone, just to suss it out and talk to people. And I think if you do that kind of work, uh, you'll eventually get to the right landing. Whereas, I, and uh, they've also had a big consultation in New South Wales on these El Tessa uh, agreements that we haven't talked uh, that much about, Giles. Uh, El Tessa, which is a, an acronym for basically uh, uh, the service, the payments that the New South Wales government will make to the various uh, uh, wind and, and solar things, where I believe the uh, contentious point um, is is whether whether it should be firm for just one project or whether you could have a whole a bunch of projects that have a firm component to them. If you try and firm up every individual one, uh, then you know maybe that's not the best uh, solution mm. from the portfolio, and so that that's a, that's a bit of a topic too. Hey Andrew, I'm I'm just um, curiosity's got the better of me. You talked about the sort of the various payments for wind turbines and hosting wind turbines mm. on property, and also for transmission towers. Give us an idea what sort of what sort of money are we talking about? Firstly, for the wind turbines, I mean uh, there must be a range, and and secondly, what are we talking about in transmission towers? Uh, well, these things are always very context dependent, and um, and they're also you know often pretty commercial in confidence but but there's a general sort of rule of thumb that uh for a, a wind tower it's it's around five five thousand per megawatt um per year uh, for a, depending on distance i think doesn't it uh, also andrew i mean the more innovative ones the closer you are the more money you get oh well the 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 developers have a relationship with their their landholders so they need to lease land least part of their their land so that's a specific agreement uh and so they're the ones who who benefit the most um and again to sort of you know hark back to the early days of wind projects it used to be that the landholders were the only ones who got paid and and you know quite rightly people next door were saying well you know i'm just as close to these turbines as these guys why aren't why am i getting something um, so we campaigned for a number of years for neighbour payments, uh, which are now we're starting to see um, become a more normal thing. And 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 the neighbour payments can be can vary quite a bit. But um, there was actually a, a very good announcement last week from uh, NeoN around their Thunderbolt uh, wind farm, which is up near Armadale. Um, 
and th they had a really clear uh, sort of structure and system for neighbor payments which is, is worth looking into for transmission it's it's more um, complicated because it, it's based on things in New South Wales for instance it's the um, the just terms act uh, and and so uh, the payments are based on property value and, and a range of other considerations around um, you know impairment and you know things like the, does it does it get in the way of, of the the farming work that you're doing there already? So that that's harder to quantify. But um, but we're looking to do a bit more work into into those kind of numbers to try and get some a sense of what you know how material they are. But look in the scheme of things, they're going to make a huge difference, I think, on the ground. But in the scheme of the cost of the projects, it, it, I'd be surprised if they're going to make a huge difference. And Giles, it's quite analogous to the coal seam gas industry, one of your favourite uh, uh, industries I know, uh, where you know the mineral rights belong to the crown. So in theory, the landowner can't can just get compensation for for you know the disturbance to the land that occurs. Yeah. But but in practice, the industry found it was a lot more sensible uh, to to you know keep the farmers on side. Of course, they didn't actually succeed in that because who can ever keep a farmer mm. on side? Uh, oh, Andrew, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you there, um, David. I, I, in general, farmers, you know, are, are fairly pragmatic. They're business; they run businesses, and you know, they can they'll they'll take things on their merits in that way. And I and I think one of the messages I think at the moment is uh, for the renewable energy industry and transmission industry is that as they embark on building, you know, what are really quite massive infrastructure projects in a lot of places in the country, that they need to be they need to be ahead of the game because if they're not if they're not delivering, you know, really tangible and and you know real benefits to local communities from the get-go um they are going to lose their social license um, well I, I agree with that and i don't want to uh, dwell on it too much more but it does bring me back to a point that i observed as an investment analyst that it was nearly always easier to do something in queensland than it is in victoria you know if you go to victoria it tends to run way over budget, cost a lot more. This was this was typical of a lot of things and have long delays. You could look at the desail plant as, as an old example. And perhaps I've been unfair, but Queensland rebuilt the southern Queensland part of its transmission network. Uh, and no one said a single word about it. The whole thing was done. As far as I know, I never heard a single complaint about it. It just turned up in a couple of years' time. Now, maybe social licence and, and stuff has moved along, but it can be done. Mm. Uh, maybe it doesn't keep everyone mm. happy. And, and, and look, I'm, I'm a big believer in social licence, don't get me wrong, uh, but I just noticed this. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I think, um, you know, we've... we've <clears throat> so we, we put together a report um, on... which was entitled Building Social Licence for, for Transmission, and um, and we had some really good engagement with, with TNSPs you know, throughout the NEM, but um, but PowerLink in particular um, it did remind us that they had actually done a bit of um, large-scale transmission building in, in recent years. So that, they're kind of the exception there, and um, and yeah, they're certainly quite interested in their community engagement. So I just got a couple more questions on this. Um, one, because you you know you've talked about the sort of social license and sort of you know the the, the landowners. Now we hear a lot about how um, farmers who host wind turbines and solar farms and things like that they can sort of by and large get on with the business that they're currently doing and they appreciate the extra income. Um, are they embracing transmission lines in the same way? 
Oh, well, I, I think we're at the start of this conversation, to be honest. I mean, it's not, mm -hmm. there's a lot, there are a lot of transmission lines across a lot of farms already. Um, yes. So it's it's something we've we've had for decades. Uh, and, and I think this is a, a kind of discussion that needs to be had. I mean, if you, um, so for instance, around the Western Victorian line, a bit of this is going to happen on a project by project basis, because you're going to be talking to farmers with different different sort of operations but they're um they've they're probably going through um a potato farming area uh and so people are saying well you know we've got sprayers we can't you know we can't be having transmission lines across our paddocks we won't be able to use our sprayers anymore but but actually there are three different types of sprayers one of them shoots water up into the air and that's one of that's the one you can't use with the, the transmission lines but the other two you certainly can um, and so if it's just a matter of, you know, working with the farmer and, and covering their costs to re-jig re their, their irrigation and their, their spraying, um, then, you know, that's, that's quite doable. But, but there, there has to be that understanding amongst that farming community that these, uh, these options are there and there has to be trust with the company that they're um, negotiating in good faith and will, you know, look after them if that's what happens. Yeah, and and I'm just wondering to what extent. I mean, why I should mention that you actually won a Clean Energy uh, Council Award um, this year. Congratulations for that for your communication skills and your efforts as the National Director of Realliance and, um, and and just sort of dealing with some of these social issues. So so well done on that. Thank you. Just, just talking about Victoria though. So are you seeing some of maybe the old anti wind elements sort of reemerging in some of these community groups that are sort of being vociferous, so vociferous against these uh, networks? And how, as a renewable energy advocate, are you sort of inserting yourselves in the conversation? Because you obviously want transmission lines to go ahead in some form and renewable energy projects to be developed. At the same time, you don't want the communities to be mm. screwed over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, the foundation for us is, is there a fair deal out of Project X, um, you know, that, that we're talking about? <clears throat> so whether that be the wind farm, um, a solar farm uh, or a transmission line, um, are the, the sort of terms in which they're, you know, negotiating with the local community, are they fair? Um, you know, can can the, the local community genuinely um, have their question answered if they say, well, what's in it for us? Because it's a completely reasonable question that um, that industry needs to be answering. And um, and so for a start, the, you know, the, the industry, the company, whatever the, the situation happens to be, needs to be listening to what the community wants uh, and then from there be able to deliver. So, so that, that's the foundational part. Are the community benefit programs in place? Um, are the is the community engagement uh, open and fair and transparent? Um, you know, is all that sort of stuff looked after? And um, and once those things are in place, um, you know, I think we're we're happy to go out and make the case that um, that we need you know we need these transmission lines, we need the wind and solar plants to generate the new energy, we need the the battery projects. That are going to provide the story, um, the storage, um, and so we're, we're happy to make that case. But mm -hmm. but we want just want to make sure that the, the the first bits are in place first. Will you oppose them if they don't come good with those um, social license issues? Uh, we have done that once in the past. We did object to a, a wind farm in New South Wales, which was um, it's not a 
not a decision we took at all lightly and it's not one that we've had to do since so i'm hoping we won't need to cross that bridge we <laughs> will uh you know try to try to work with um, the companies to the extent we can um to make sure those things are in place uh, so uh, we're certainly not ready to be opposing any any new projects at this stage mm -hmm. okay well, look, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're probably um, just about um, out of end of time. So um, thank you very much. And look, I just think that social license is just going to be, um, well, it has been and it will continue to be and probably ever more so a, a, a key issue, not just because of the uh, scale of the projects, which we're about to embark on um, as we sort of ramp up the uh, rollout of wind and solar and consider things like offshore wind and these mega projects uh, in, in the outback. Um, mm. there's going to be a lot on our plate mm, absolutely and um, if I can just put in a, a final plug we are a um, community member based organisation so if anyone wants to check out our website and um, uh, join up as a, as a member it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's good to have as, as many people on board as we can for this kind of work so yeah yeah Oh, good on you. No, well done for your efforts and your ongoing efforts. And, um, uh, you know, I think I've um, known you for um, about a decade or more since you've been um, in this role. So, um, so, so well done. Yeah, um, thanks, Charles. Yeah, good on you, Andy. Uh, th thank you. And um, thanks, David, um, for joining us um, again this week. Um, be fascinating to see what the state energy ministers come up with um, tomorrow. Are you expecting? Well, tomorrow, today, by the time this broadcast is, um, I mean, they probably would have met by the time we've actually sort of published this podcast. But um... look, Giles, I think we can say we're all looking forward. You know, it's a political. It's going to be a political decision, isn't it? What what it will show is who's got the balance of power and 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 who's got whose ear and where it all falls. And I am, am not clear uh, about how it all works since you know the actual formal. <laughs> formal part of it you know who actually is it is it a vote of, of this sort of oh. sub cabinet does it have to be unanimous i mean i think it's very clear that new south wales and victoria will yeah. just uh, have their own schemes will have their, new south wales will have its own process in place no matter what yeah i don't think anyone knows and understands how it works actually and um, the whole thing is shrouded in secrecy because it's a national cabinet meeting so no one can actually comment about anything afterwards and we get this sort of very sort of anodyne sort of press release saying we're continuing work and it doesn't go anywhere very far look we are out of time um thank you very much david thank you very much andrew bray once again from realliance and do check out their website realliance uh, re.alliance um dot org. Re no re-alliance sorry re-alliance correct um, .org.au. .org I'm going to say that one more time. Re-alliance.org.au. Um, thanks once again to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks everyone out there for listening. And we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.